0: Taylor, I'm Katz. and welcome to Square Mile of Murder.
1: Our kiss this week is one that we've had planned for quite a while, and one which, to be honest, I'm quite nervous about doing, which says a lot, I think, because this is the one thing in my life that does not give me anxiety. <laughs> 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 uh, this week, we are exploring the racist murder. Of 18-year-old Stephen Lawrence in London in April 1993. This case dominated headlines throughout the 1990s, well into the 2000s, and it brought the institutional racism at the heart of London's Metropolitan Police into the spotlight, led to huge investigations into police conduct. And
0: this is the first hate crime episode we've done. Yeah, it is. Um and you know it would be easy for us to just not cover this case or or any other hate crimes and just you know keep doing other stuff um but this is important and we aren't willing to just pay lip service to working against racism we want to try to positively contribute to the conversation in the best way that you know we can um while also making space for black and other ethnic minority voices um and with that in mind actually um we're going to uh, give you a list of black hosted podcasts at the end of the episode so look out for that and and go listen to them don't just listen to us
1: (laughs) yeah i mean personally i feel like this case is so very important i mean firstly it exposed institutional racism in this country it was something you could no longer deny i mean the police continue to try but <laughs> it really brought it into the spotlight mm-hmm. and b in this country we are so very good at pretending racism just isn't a thing anymore because get this right we ended the slave trade and we have people of color in our government and so we can't possibly be racist No. And all the rest of that complete and utter bullshit. And there is this myth in in the UK that we are like all post-racial but we're not. Racism is a problem in this country just as it is in America and in so many other countries around the world. And the whole Brexit referendum highlighted this and it's legitimised racism and xenophobia in this country so much. Yeah, it really has. In the last
0: five years um so let's talk about Stephen Lawrence Stephen Lawrence was born in London on September 13th 1974 Uh, he was the eldest of three children born to Jamaican parents Neville and Doreen along with his younger siblings Stuart and Georgina he was brought up in Plumstead southeast London Stephen was a talented runner and represented the local Cambridge Harriers athletic club He also excelled in school, and at the time of his death, he was studying English language and literature, physics, and technology. And he was planning on going to university and wanted to become an architect. But all that changed on Thursday, April 22nd, 1993.
1: On April 22nd, 1993, Stephen had left school, as usual, in the afternoon. And after going to the shops, he took a bus to Grove Park which is another neighbourhood in Southeast London, to visit one of his uncles. He was joined there at his uncle's house by his friend Dwayne Brooks. They hung out at the house playing video games till about 10pm when they left and boarded the 286 bus. However, upon realising that the 286 bus would get them home quite late, they decided to change buses and they got off on Wellhall Road we're in either the 161 or the 122 bus, both of which would get them home a lot quicker than the one they were on originally.
0: Um, the pair got to the bus stop on Well Hall Road at 10:25. Uh, the bus was late, so Stephen walked down the road to the junction with Dixon Road to see if he could see a bus coming. Then turned around and walked back towards the bus stop, and Dwayne waited for him at the bus stop. Um, But before Stephen could get back to the stop, at approximately 10.38 p.m., a group of young white men crossed the road and surrounded him, shouting racial epithets. Uh, The group hit Stephen with what looked like an iron bar, but later turned out to be a butcher's knife, and he fell to the ground. Um, This initial hit with the knife cut Stephen uh, to a depth of five inches through his left shoulder and punctured his lung. Another stab cut through his right collarbone, severing his auxiliary arteries. It was all over in less than one minute. Uh, Dwayne later said that had they known the bus would be so late, they would have just jogged home because they weren't that far away from home, only a couple of miles. The pair
1: ran away towards Shooters Hill, with Stephen managing to run 120 metres before he collapsed in the road, and his attackers just ran off in the opposite direction. And pathologist Richard Shepard later said that it was a testament to Stephen's physical fitness that he was able to run over 100 metres with a punctured lung, having just been stabbed repeatedly. Dwayne shouted at passersby that they needed help, but nobody stopped to help them. So he ran to find a phone and ring 999, and a passing off-duty police officer stopped and laid a blanket over Stephen. Now remember that. He laid a blanket over him did not carry out first aid He did not try and stop the bleeding and the ambulance arrived soon after and stephen was taken to brooks general hospital at 11 or 5 p.m but by that time he had already bled to death
0: now before we continue to talk about the um investigation into stephen's murder we need to take a bit of time to talk about racism in the uk um As we said at the top of the show, there's this sort of myth of post-racialism in the UK. Um, In the 1940s, with the UK in ruins following the Second World War, people from all over the British Empire were invited, word to keep in mind, to come to the UK and help rebuild the country following the war. Now, let's just go over that again. They were invited to the UK. The government said come on in, come to the UK, live here, work here, help us rebuild the country. And so people came because they were invited. And that's the polite thing to do. Just RSVP'd to their invitation. Uh, So this generation of people who came to the UK because they were invited became known as the Windrush generation.
1: So, one thing that I only found out a few weeks ago was that the Windrush generation who came to the UK in the post-war years, they all had British citizenship. They had British passports. I was never taught this. I was always under the impression that these people who came from the West Indies, these Caribbean countries, you know, they had passports for the countries they came from. And, you know they had, like, a legal immigration status Uh because they were invited here. Uh But that is not the case. They all had British passports. They were all British citizens when they came here. Uh They only ceased to be British citizens when these British colonies gained their independence, which I believe was in the 70s. And initially, they were all protected by immigration laws because obviously they had no immigration papers, because they didn't need them. Because they, they were British.
0: British.
1: Yeah. Changes in immigration laws in the last decade have, over, last two decades, have failed to protect them. And this is what led to the so-called Windrush scandal. And just to clarify things, because I also didn't know this. So quite often the Windrush generation are described as being from the West Indies, which is often used interchangeably with the caribbean so basically any countries in like any caribbean island Mm -hmm. um but the uk government at this time recruited almost exclusively from jamaica and barbados but people did come from all over the caribbean
0: now we so don't have time in this episode uh to go into the complexities of the british empire or even uh the windrush scandal but we will try to Summarize it in a few concise sentences. Um, So the Windrush scandal, named after Empire Windrush the ship, which brought the first groups of migrants from the West Indies to the UK in 1948, uh, is described as a political scandal that was part of the hostile environment policy instituted by the British government's Home Office under Home Secretary Theresa May, who later, you may know, became Prime Minister. The treatment of the Windrush generation became a scandal in late 2017 when it became public knowledge that people were being detained, denied legal rights, threatened with deportation, in, and in at least 83 cases wrongfully deported from the UK by the Home Office. Most of those affected had been born British subjects and had arrived in the UK prior to 1973
1: the Windrush generation helped build our national health service and um, they helped build our national rail network and did so while being subjected to appalling racist abuse from white Britons and this is not just abuse in the street which we'll get to in a minute this is at every level of government as well uh Caribbean immigrants were blamed and scapegoated for all the ills in society, along with the Indian migrants who came before them from, uh, who came from India and what eventually became Pakistan, uh, while that was part of the British Empire. Uh, Racist groups such as the National Front went on marches, (laughs) where they protested for Caribbean and Indian Brits to be sent back to where they came from, for immigration to be subjected to much tighter controls. basically that Britain was for white people
0: and it should stay that way.
1: And yes, we are talking about the 70s, not a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah, but uh, don't blame you for possibly getting those confused. Um, The 1970s saw large-scale unemployment across Britain, which disproportionately affected the British Caribbean community, um, and ultimately civil unrest throughout the late 70s and early 1980s. Uh, which were called uprisings by some and riots by others. Then Home Secretary William Whitelaw commissioned the Scarman Report to investigate the causes of these uprisings, and the report identified both racial discrimination and a racial, racial disadvantage in Britain and concluded that urgent action was needed to prevent these issues becoming an endemic, ineradicable disease threatening the very survival of our society.
1: As you can tell, unless you've been living under a rock for the past few years or decades, the slogans and demands of the far right are exactly the same today in 2020 Britain, as they were 40 or 50 years ago in the 1970s and 1980s. Post-racial Britain, my fucking ass. But it wasn't just the National Front and rioting in the streets that black Britons had to contend with. In 1983... This is just 10 years before Stephen Lawrence was murdered. The chairman of the Police Federation said on live television that a police officer should not be dismissed for using the N-word. And let's just specify, he did not say N-word. He actually said that word. Lovely. Claiming that it being a term of abuse was just a matter of opinion.
0: I'm going to go ahead and guess this guy was white. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What what made you think that?
0: Just a hunch.
1: Police were also exempt from the Race Relations Act until 1999. The Race Relations Act was brought in in 1965 and outlawed discrimination on the grounds of a person's colour, race, or ethnic or national origins in public places in Great Britain. And for 34 years, police were legally allowed to be as racist as they wanted to be. There was literally no law stopping police from racially discriminating against a person of colour in any way until 1999 in the UK. Not that changing the law stopped them from doing it. It's just now there is the opportunity to hold them accountable for it.
0: A lot of the same kind of shit going on in the US, but I don't have the time or the research done to properly get into that maybe in yeah. another episode at some point but uh yeah we we shall return to steven lawrence's murder uh along with steven's friend Dwayne, three other witnesses at the bus stop all said that the attack had been sudden and short and none of them were able to identify the murderers one of the witnesses said she thought that Stephen was okay because he got up and ran away. Um, within 24 hours of the murder, several local residents came forward to police with the names of the attackers. and Two anonymous notes were also found, one on a police car uh, windshield and one in a phone box. Uh, and these notes had the names of members of a local gang who had killed Stephen. Um And there had been 26 anonymous tip-offs with the names of the attackers as well. The same five names kept popping up. And they were Gary Dobson, Neil Acourt, and his brother Jamie Acourt, Luke Knight, and David Norris.
1: Despite multiple witnesses, and at this point there was over 30 of them, giving the same five names, it still took police four days to actually do anything. Four days in a murder inquiry.
0: It just it's so many people coming and telling you these are them. Yeah. Like why don't you just look into it? Yeah. So
1: four days later they began surveillance on the suspects' homes. No arrests, no interviews, no questions. Half assed surveillance. Which in a moment you well Later on, you'll see why I'm calling it half-ass surveillance. (laughs) One of the senior officers in the case actually said in a BBC documentary that we watched, which is called Stephen, the murder that changed a nation. And yeah, one of the senior officers in this case actually said it was a rumour going around and people were just phoning in names that they heard. And that that isn't evidence. And that's why they were slow moving forward. Why appeal for information? If you're going to be like, oh, it's just a rumour.
0: That's the thing. All information is just rumour until you, the police, corroborate it. Yeah. like.
1: But you've also got 30 people corroborating the same information.
0: Exactly. Like, if, if, it's not some... if all roads lead to racist white boys, follow the fucking roads to them. Yeah. And
1: four of these five youths, I think I actually called them men earlier they weren't these were all they're actually all under 18 so four of the five youths were already known to police for being violent white supremacist pieces of shit and they were linked to a number of racist knife attacks or attempted knife attacks in eltham southeast london and that is where well hall road is where stephen was murdered that was in eltham so just four weeks before stephen's death Gary Dobson and Neil Aykart were involved in a racist attack on a black teenager named Kevin London, whom they verbally abused and attempted to stab. Neil's brother Jamie was accused of stabbing black teenagers Darren Witham in May 1992 and Darren Giles in 1994, because, spoiler alert, they were still walking, walking the streets a year later. And this attack in 1994 caused Darren Giles to have a heart attack. He's a teenager. He's su- survived, as far as I could find out, but it caused a heart attack.
0: Jesus Christ!
1: The stabbings of Gurdeep Bangal and Stacy Benefield, both of which ta- both of which happened in March 1993 in Eltham, were also linked to the Acor brothers, David Nor- Norris and Gary
0: Dobson. And you know, think about it like this: if this had been the other way around, and a gang of black teenagers had attacked an unarmed white teenager who was just waiting for his bus home one night. And they were known in the community for committing knife attacks. Police would have hunted them down immediately because they would have been considered a danger to the public. But that didn't happen in this case. Of course not. They just began surveillance and In fact, there were days when the surveillance team just didn't bother to show up at all, (laughs) which is amazing. Um, Yeah. A a photographer took pictures of Jamie Acourt leaving his home with uh, a black bin bag, uh, putting it in his car and driving away. But he was never followed and the contents of the bag were never recovered because the police surveillance team that day just didn't show up. Now, it might have been nothing, but it also might have been incriminating evidence. Like, nobody knows because nobody looked at it. While the police
1: were taking their sweet time doing absolutely fuck all, protests had begun across South London, just like we have seen this year following the murder of George Floyd. And uh, one of these protests took place outside the BNP headquarters in Welling, South London, which was... Really not very far from where Stephen was murdered, like a mile away. Mm. And for those outside the UK or those who are too young to remember the BNP, the British National Party are a far-right, racist, fascist political party. They actually describe themselves as that. Cool. Or have done in the past. That is how they are widely described. I actually thought they were now defunct, but they are still around, but they have no seats in the House of Commons. They've not been elected. They spew hatred, so division, mainly about racism and immigration. And Stephen's friend Dwayne was at this protest. And he was arrested for damaging a BMW. But he wasn't actually arrested until October 1993. So Stephen was murdered in the April. And these protests took place late April, early May. He wasn't arrested until October. Just remember that.
0: (laughs) Um, So family liaison officers were sent to the Lawrence home. uh, But Neville and Doreen would later say that police weren't really interested in what had happened to their son. But uh, instead wanted to know what connections he had to criminals or gangs or drug dealing. Um, Which he had none. He had no connections to these things. Yeah. And for uh, anyone wanting to know a little bit more about FLOW's family liaison officers, we talked a little bit about them in the Shannon Matthews episode we did a couple weeks back. Yeah. Um, But it's important to note that while these officers that are embedded with families are... um, you know, there to provide a line of communication between the police and the family. They're also sent there to investigate the family, in in a lot yeah. of ways. So, keep that in mind. These weren't
1: just—they're supposed to investigate what happened, not yeah. what
0: they want they to have happened. Happened. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's not just an altruistic like, oh, we'll we'll be here to help you like talk to the police investigating the case it's not exactly how it works while the the flows and and all the other police on the case were just trying to figure out what steven's connections to the cd underworld of of crime were even though those connections didn't exist um police didn't really want to do any work that involved tackling racism. They just wanted to close the case by saying that Stephen and Dwayne were drug dealers and that drug dealers, you know, they kill each other sometimes. Um, they even claimed that Stephen had been burglarizing houses because a pair of gloves were found near the crime scene. And obviously, the only possible reason a black teenager would have a pair of gloves is to be a burglar. Not because it might have been yeah. cold at night.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the night he was murdered, he had five layers of clothing on, so I'm gonna guess that it was cold.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna gonna say that's probably a better reason.
1: Yeah. Um, they yeah also... There was literally no evidence that these gloves had ever been used in a burglary.
0: And, like, but... what if I found a pair of gloves at a crime scene where a kid who had yeah been wearing a bunch of layers had been killed, I wouldn't think, oh, well, this kid was a burglar because he had gloves. I'd think, no, this kid was cold because it was cold. Yeah. Look at the rest of his clothing. Uh, So the police also took names and details of all the family's friends and anyone who came to the house. So, uh, you know, members of the local community who just wanted to offer condolences and see if they could help in any way, Um, community activists, everyone that came in, um, the police were taking down their names in an attempt to find anyone uh, who knew the family who might have had criminal connections. Um, and uh, Stephen's parents were so upset and angry that the flows were trying to paint Stephen as a thief and a drug dealer that they uh, eventually threw them out of their home, which, good for them. Yeah. So remember earlier when
1: we said that the off-duty officer who stopped just put a blanket over Stephen while he bled out in the middle of the street? Well, that officer later claimed that he didn't know Stephen had been stabbed multiple times. It was dark, and Stephen was wearing lots of layers. The stab wounds were fucking five inches deep. And they went in through his shoulder, into his lung. That is a lot of force. That is a lot of hate. That is a lot of intention. And that is a lot of blood.
0: That's the thing. They hit arteries. And yeah. arterial's, arterial blood is under pressure. So it goes everywhere and it goes fast and at speed. Like,
1: Yeah, I, I do not believe for a second that nobody noticed. So the stab wounds weren't discovered until paramedics arrived and tried to move Stephen into the ambulance. On-duty police also arrived um, just before the ambulance did and... Still, not one of them even checked if he was breathing. They were more interested in questioning Dwayne. But, you know, my friend's been beaten and stabbed. Apparently wasn't... Didn't ring off any alarm bells. You know, like, oh, maybe we should check he's not bled to death on the street. Maybe we should check his breathing. Maybe we should, like, staunch the blood. No. Put pressure on the wound. Oh. So, Stephen was lying in a pool of his own blood, but they still maintain that they couldn't tell he had any injuries other than being hit. So police really were only concerned with Dwayne's involvement in the attack and it was later revealed that they believed it was a drug-related attack. Dwayne was the perpetrator. So they had basically decided upon seeing a black teenager bleeding. I will never believe that they did not see him bleeding. No, there's no way. They saw... This black teenager in the street, bleeding, decided it was two black gangbangers who fought over a drug dealer. One killed the other. The police also theorised that the racist term the group shouted at Stephen before they stabbed him was a nickname. Yes, you heard that correctly. The Metropolitan Police, supposedly the best police force we have in this country, God help us all, asked if a group of white youths known in the area for their connections to multiple racist attacks might have been calling Stephen the N-word because it was a nickname they had for him.
0: So much backwards logic there. Like, what the yeah. fuck? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as we said before... Neville and Doreen were vocal in their criticism of the Met Police and the glacially slow movement of the investigation. And they saw it as the police trying to prove Stephen was a criminal rather than arrest the five youths who at least 30 local people had named as being involved in multiple racist stabbings in the local area. And it was also revealed years later that a woman who is described as a, quote, vital witness had telephoned police three times in the days following the murder, claiming to be a witness and to have information, but police just never followed up with her.
1: Two weeks after the murder, Nelson Mandela came to Britain. I'm just going to assume everyone knows who Nelson Mandela is. I think that's a
0: safe assumption.
1: (laughs) And he met with Neville and Doreen Lawrence. He spoke with them about Stephen's murder, about the lack of police action, or even the police caring that a black teenager had been murdered by a gang of white teenagers in the street. And then Nelson Mandela spoke to the international media about Stephen's murder. And this is when this case went from being a small little local story to being a huge national news story, which dominated national headlines for two decades. Uh-huh. And interestingly, and I'm sure this is a complete coincidence and had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Nelson fucking Mandela had just told the international media that the Metropolitan Police weren't the least bit interested in finding out who had murdered Stephen Lawrence and had done nothing despite multiple witnesses giving the same names and corroborating information. Nothing to do with that. But the very next day... The first arrests were finally made,
0: definitely just a random coincidence obviously yeah
1: those, those dates just just I mean it was planned all along, even yeah. before they were humiliated by Nelson Mandela in the international
0: media. It's fine um <laughs> but even better, um the Lawrence family weren't even told about the arrests. they found out about it on the news. Uh, and police were very tight-lipped about the arrests, and they claimed it was because the suspects were juveniles, and that meant that they had to proceed carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it turned out that the ACORP brothers and Gary Dobson had been arrested. David Norris turned himself in a few days later, and Luke Knight was arrested on June third. Uh, Dwayne had picked. Neil Acourt and Luke Knight out at um, identity parades as being two of Stephen's murderers and on June 23rd the pair were charged with murder
1: but the relief for Stephen's loved ones and all the local communities didn't last long because on June 29th less than a week later the pair were released with all charges dropped the CPS cited lack of evidence as the reason stating that Dwayne wasn't a reliable witness. But why, all of a sudden, was Dwayne not considered reliable? Well, the sergeant who oversaw the identity parade in which Dwayne identified Luke Knight, which I believe was the third identity parade he'd attended, DS Christopher Crawley said that Dwayne had told him he was picking suspects out based upon descriptions friends had given him of the Acor brothers. Firstly, I don't believe that for a second. Mm-hmm. Secondly, why would you tell some, uh, the officer in charge of an identity parade that you didn't really know who they were? You were just basing it on some descriptions some friends had given you. Yeah. No. Dwayne obviously denies all of this. But he does say that he did, had described Stephen's attackers to his friends. And they had said it sounded like Jamie Urquhart from his description. That is not the same thing. No. So, the the charges were dropped. If Dwayne had any credibility left after this, which there wasn't much, it was destroyed by police in October that year when he was arrested for overturning the car at the demonstration outside the BMP headquarters, just weeks after Stephen's death. So, let's go from... So, that was beginning of May, uh, June, July, August, September... That's five months it took them. They supposedly had these photos. I mean, the photos were in the press days after it happened. So they had known about it for months. It's almost like police are trying to completely destroy the only witness who could really identify the boys who killed his friend.
0: I mean, it's possible. Certainly sounds that way, doesn't it? Um, so that summer, Stephen's family held a memorial at their local church, which was attended by hundreds of people. Uh, the police asked the family if they could attend and Doreen said, no, they didn't want the police there, which God bless her. I love this woman. Yeah. Um, Stephen's body was eventually flown to Jamaica and he was buried there because as his mother said, quote, Britain doesn't deserve him. Uh, The case went pretty quiet after the charges were dropped. Um, In December 1993, the Southwark coroner, Sir Montague Levine, a good name there, halted an inquest into Stephen's death after the family's barrister, Michael Mansfield QC, said there was, quote, dramatic new evidence believed to include information identifying three new suspects. But in April 1994, the CPS once again said there was not sufficient evidence to prosecute.
1: Yep. And we don't actually know what this evidence was. Um, it's probably out there somewhere, but we couldn't find it. Uh, after the CPS once again refused to prosecute due to lack of evidence, Neville and Doreen decided to initiate a private prosecution against five white youths. Now private prosecution works the same as any other prosecution except instead of being initiated by the police and the Crown prosecution service it's initiated by a private citizen or organisation. So this is essentially the Lawrences taking matters into their own hands as much as the law allowed. Private prosecutions are rare and I believe this was the first one for over 150 years in Britain. But they're also very, very risky. Because if you initiate a private prosecution, one, the CPS can step in and stop it. But also, if the suspect is found not guilty, they can't be prosecuted again if new evidence comes to light because of double jeopardy. So, it's very...
0: It's a big swing.
1: It's very, yeah.
0: So it was a long process, and by the time the case went to trial in April 1996, charges had already been dropped against Jamie Acourt and David Norris due to lack of evidence. On the 23rd of April 1996, the three remaining suspects, Neil Acourt, Luke Knight, and Gary Dobson, were acquitted of murder by a jury. um, After the trial judge, Mr. Justice Curtis ruled that the identification evidence given by Dwayne Brooks was unreliable. So, Dwayne says in the documentary, um, Stephen, The Murderer That Changed a Nation, he knew that if he didn't give evidence, he would be blamed for the trial collapsing, but that he also knew his identification evidence, uh, once again, wasn't going to be considered good enough.
1: I feel so sorry for Dwayne in this. He gets such a rough ride. Um. An inquest into Stephen's death was held in February 1997 with the jury returning a verdict after just 30 minutes' deliberation of unlawful killing, quote, in a completely unprovoked racist attack by five white youths. Now they got in trouble for this (laughs) because this finding went beyond the bounds of their instructions. They're not actually supposed, at an inquest, you're not actually supposed to stand up in court and say who did it. You're supposed to, is it unlawful death? Is it an open verdict, which means that nobody knows how they died, um, which obviously wouldn't be the case when you've got two great big stab wounds in the chest. But yeah, you're not supposed to stand up and say, in an unprovoked racist attack by five white youths. The five suspects were all summoned to give evidence, all refused to answer any questions claiming privilege against self-incrimination, which is the British version of taking the fifth. You do have the absolute right to remain silent, to refuse to answer questions, When you're claiming privilege against self-incrimination. Everyone knows what that really means.
0: Not great.
1: So following the verdict. And in a rare break from spewing divisive racist bile. British newspaper the Daily Mail ran a front page with the headline. Murderers. The Mail accuses these men of killing Stephen Lawrence. If we are wrong, let them sue us. Underneath were photos of the five suspects. To this day. Not one of them has brought any kind of libel or legal action against the Daily Mail.
0: That says a lot. It's
1: going to you sit in that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so the inquest was essentially the end of the line, legally. Um, the CPS refused to prosecute, and the private prosecution had seen the suspects acquitted, and because of double jeopardy, they couldn't be prosecuted again. So the only thing left to do was, uh, as they had done with the inquest, record a verdict of unlawful killing. So five months after the inquest, in the summer of 1997, Home Secretary Jack Straw ordered an inquiry into the investigation, the findings of which became known as the McPherson Report. Um, The public inquiry was headed up by Sir William McPherson, hence the name, and found that the Metropolitan Police Service was institutionally racist. The report also recommended that the double jeopardy rule should be repealed in murder and other serious cases, including manslaughter, kidnapping, rape, armed robbery, and some drug crimes, to allow a retrial upon new and compelling evidence. And this was uh, affected on enactment of the Criminal Justice Act 2003. The report also found that the Metropolitan Police had ignored the findings of the Scarman Report in 1981, um, which, you know, as we said, the whole, if you don't stop this racism, it will be a disease threatening the very survival of our society. Police just ignored that casual warning, you know. Jack Straw commented in 2012 that ordering the inquiry was, quote, the single most important decision I made as Home Secretary. Uh, not that the Metropolitan Police accepted the findings. Uh, of course, they challenged the definitions in their report of racism and institutional racism. And we're like, what? Here? Who? When? How? No, not us. Never mind. Go away.
1: They, they literally turn around and go, we have black officers. We can't be racist. Yeah. And there's that is literally one of Still defenses.
0: saying that today.
1: Now, in every episode we do, we can't include everything. And we have to pick and choose what we can include and what we leave out. So you can go and read about the McPherson report, what happened next. We will put links in the episode description, on our website. We just don't have the time to go into it in this episode. Um this I think is what gave me like made me so nervous about doing this episode just what we can include and what we can There's
0: a lot because of all, all these like reports and related like subjects there's a lot that yeah. like this could be easily like a five or 10 part series.
1: Th- this could be its whole like a whole standalone yeah. podcast that went on for years. Yeah.
0: So Obviously, but we don't one, <laughs> we don't want to do that because it doesn't. It, it, I think also what's important is to to go through and tell the story of Stephen Lawrence and the sort of yeah touch on the impact and the surrounding circumstances yeah. and the context. But like, yeah. So this episode we're focusing on this one person, yeah. this one case, and then you know. We can point you yeah. towards the other direction.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, we've talked about this between the two of us quite a bit. It's not our story to tell. No, not at all. We will stand up, we will do everything we can to be better allies, but at some point it stops being our story. It's not our story to talk about. And if you want to go into that much depth about racism in Britain, two white people... One of whom
0: isn't even British. To- <laughs> Not not yeah. the right people to be spearheading we are the, right the conversation. People. No. And, like, there are many, many wonderful creators and writers and, and podcasters who do a much more eloquent job than we could ever hope to do. And so yeah. we will point you in their direction. And uh, Yeah. And it
1: goes back to what we've said before. We understand that we will never understand. Yeah. But along with sharing competence and racism, there were also accusations of collusion and corruption within the Met, as I suppose there always is, um, which led to the killers being protected by the original investigation team. And again, we just don't have time to include it all, but we will leave links to articles and documentaries and things about that on the website as well. So as Taylor said, we are going to focus on Stephen's story and what happened next in the case and yeah the McPherson report was a landmark report and it was described as one of the most important moments in the modern history of criminal justice in Britain but it still left Stephen's murder technically unsolved and it fell into the cold case pile. That was until 2006 but we'll get to that in just a minute. The Criminal Justice Act of 2003, which actually didn't go into law until 2005, and it meant that double jeopardy no longer applied in murder cases and other serious crimes where there was new compelling evidence. So that meant that if there was new evidence implicated Gary Dobson, Neil Aykart, Jamie Aykart, Luke Knight and David Nor- Norris, in Stephen Lawrence's murder, they could be prosecuted again. Huh. Repealing double jeopardy was described as the most far reaching change to British law for 800 years. And if, like me, you're wondering what happened 800 years ago, in the year 1215, the Magna Carta was signed. And we really don't have time to get into that history lesson today. (laughs) Just go Google it.
0: But like quite impressive for something to be the most striking change in nearly a millennia. Like, yeah, in June 2006, like we said, a cold case review uh, was opened involving a full reexamination of the forensic evidence, although uh, this was kept fairly quiet for over a year. Um, The cold case was headed up by Detective Clive Driscoll. He sort of stumbled upon the case in June 2006. Um, He was sent to clear out a police building which had been sold and he came across hundreds of boxes marked Operation Fishpool which was the original uh, which was the name for the original investigation into Stephen's murder. Um, He was told to just throw away the boxes of files. Which again,
1: yeah, this this is still it's a cold case, but it's open. it's open. Technically, everyone knows who did it.
0: It was ruled to be an unlawful death. You're the police. Keep your fucking case notes. <clears throat> um,
1: mm,
0: double jeopardy has been repealed. That possibility is there. Anyway, um, he did not throw them out, which is great. Uh, but instead, Driscoll spoke to Cressida Dick, who at the time was uh, assistant deputy commissioner of the Met Police. She is now the commissioner of the Met Police. Um, Driscoll volunteered to take on the case.
1: Clive Driscoll was determined. And in the documentary, The Murder of It Changed the Nation, he says other officers told him to be careful because Starreen Lawrence would be critical of him. And, you know, very vocal in her criticism, as she had been with the previous investigation. And he says, well, she's got every right to be. She's his mum, and she's lost her son, for God's sake.
0: Finally, some sense, like...
1: (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot of respect for this man. Clive had been given reports which were prepared by other police officers to familiarise himself with the case. And they said that Doreen had refused police access to Stephen's school records. But then he read police statements from the original investigation and found that she'd given them over without question. Anything they wanted, she'd pretty much given them. So at that point, Clive Driscoll realised he couldn't trust what he'd been told by his own colleagues in the Met. So he decided to reinvestigate every inch of the case. And he took these original witness statements and walked down Wellhall Road. And he even went with Dwayne Brooks and walked down the street together when he realised that the road layout was different because it's been 13 years. And in a documentary, Dwayne Brooks says that, you know, him and Clive were walking down the street and it's like, well, actually this was here and that was there and there was a tree here and this layout was a bit different. And Clive Driscoll told Dwayne that walking the street with him had, and learning the old layout, it changed, and how it changed, cleared up something for him, but never told Dwayne what that something was. But yeah, he's like going back, reinvestigating, doing everything.
0: Yeah. So, good. Someone yeah, finally good is... on him. <laughs> um, Stephen's attack was always described as very brief. Just that you know, this gang flew in, stabbed him, and and then ran away. But uh, Clive quickly found out that the attack lasted 50 seconds, which, when you think about it in the time frame of someone is attacking you, that's not so brief. When he realized this, he realized that a 50-second attack meant that there would have been a lot more forensic evidence uh, than people had originally thought, and obviously in the 13 years since Stephen's murder, forensic science had developed massively. So the two most important pieces of new evidence were a microscopic blood stain on one of the suspect's clothing, uh, and then fibers and hairs from Stephen and his clothing that were found on multiple items of clothing belonging to two of the suspects. Um... And good old Clive found these within three weeks of taking over the case. Not three years, yeah. not three months, not thirteen years. Yeah. Three weeks. Three three weeks. In three weeks he'd managed to go
1: through all the witness statements, like get the whole forensics team together to
0: re-examine everything. That is amazing. Pretty impressive. Um the original evidence bags were also examined because over the years, when the, the bags had been moved or knocked around, some of the dried blood had flaked away from the clothing and um, the team then pieced it back together from from where, it, from whence it had fallen, if you will, and, and figured yeah. things out. And this out. is microscopic. Yeah. like teeny tiny. Like
1: traces of blood. This isn't like big blood clots. Yeah. This is microscopic. So in September 2010, Gary Dobson and David Norris were arrested and charged with Stephen's murder. And in October 2010, the director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, who is now the leader of the Labour Party, and um, can tell he was a barrister (laughs) where he goes after Boris at Prime (laughs) Minister's questions. I'm very much enjoying it. Um, he applied to the Court of Appeal for Dobson's original acquittal uh, in the private prosecution to be quashed. And at a hearing in April 2011, it was quashed. And that meant he could be tried again for Stephen Lawrence's murder. And because the charges against Norris had been dropped before the private prosecution went to court, there was no need for an acquittal. So Double Jeopardy didn't even apply to Perfect. him. Perfect. Um, now, following the McPherson report, so it's because it's a public inquiry, anyone can go. And all the suspect five suspects were summoned to give evidence. Yeah. There's many, many, many photos of them five suspects leaving the inquiry. They're full of swagger. The teeth are bad. They're there. They're ready to pick fights with literally anyone and everyone. I mean, why not? They had literally just gotten away with murder. Would't have all the confidence in the world. And those images were sort of sealed in the public's mind as, you know, images of stephen's killers. But when Dobson's acquittal was quashed, the appeals judge emphasized the need for a fair, fact-based trial and reporting of the trial. and there was a new trial with suspects who were innocent until proven
0: guilty. The case went to trial on November 14th, 2010 at the Old Bailey in London and centered on the new forensic evidence that was found. Um, The defense argued that it had been contaminated and that it hadn't been stored properly, but uh, the evidence was deemed admissible in court and that wasn't the only thing that was. Uh, When the suspects had been under surveillance, cameras and microphones had been placed in their homes and recorded hours and hours of them talking about how much they wanted to kill black people. And this footage is now famous, or infamous, as it may be, uh, because it involved David Norris talking about how he would attack a black man and, quote, fair warning on language here, skin the black cunt alive and set him alight. Other footage showed them playing with knives and acting out stabbing a black man in the exact same manner that Stephen Lawrence was stabbed. Dwayne Brooks once again gave evidence at trial, uh, but thankfully this time was given the credibility he deserved.
1: Both Dobson and Norris gave evidence in their own defense. They both used their mothers to give them alibis. David Norris claimed that he had been at his girlfriend's house but Gary Dobson claimed that he was at the Acor Brothers' house returning a Bob Marley CD. Because we all know that if you listen to reggae music, you can't be racist. And also placed himself with the Acor Brothers, although they have not yet been indicted for Stephen's murder. Unsurprisingly, the Bob Marley CD did not persuade the jury of Dobson's innocence. And on January 3rd, 2012, Almost 19 years after the fact, Gary Dobson and David Norris were found guilty of the murder of Stephen Lawrence. The pair were sentenced at Her Majesty's pleasure, which means a sentence of indeterminate length, with a minimum term of 15 years and 2 months for Dobson, 14 years and 3 months for Norris. The minimum terms are law, actually half the minimum term for racially motivated murder in this country, it's now 30 years minimum. And this reflects the fact that they were juveniles when they committed the murder. Dobson was 17 and Norris was 16 when they murdered Stephen Lawrence. And just to kick a pair of racist murdering pieces of shit when they're down, at the time this went to court, they would have been in their like mid-30s, so six or seven years older than we are now. Fuck me, they look rough for their <laughs> age. I would have said well into their 40s. Don't be racist, kids. Yeah, Gives you wrinkles.
0: Don't smoke and uh, don't be a bigoted asshole. It'll age you exponentially. Yeah. Um, After the convictions, Daily Mail editor Paul Dacre, who had been editor at the time of the murderer's headline, took full credit for bringing about these new convictions, claiming that if it hadn't been for him and his team running that front page there uh, would never have been any convictions.
1: I literally can't roll my eyes anymore because I think I will go blind.
0: Yeah, like just, nah, nah, bro. Nah. Um, Thankfully, the judge in the case felt differently. And after sentencing, he called Clive Driscoll up into the witness box and gave him and the whole cold case team a judge's commendation for all of their work. Um, Neil Acourt, Jamie Acourt and Luke Knight have not been charged and as far as we know are still walking free today Police remain hopeful that they will eventually have the evidence to charge them with Stephen's murder
1: Dwayne Brooks has gone on to become an MP, first as a member of the Liberal Democrat Party then as an independent candidate, candidate and currently as a Tory MP but we won't hold that against him No In 2006, he was awarded £100,000 in compensation from the Metropolitan Police for the way he was treated. And it was also revealed he had been the subject of a special demonstration squad, which was a controversial undercover special branch of the Metropolitan Police set up to infiltrate and investigate protest groups. Officers were sent undercover to try and expose incriminating material on Duane, the Lawrence family and their supporters literally anything to smear Stephen Lawrence and push the narrative that he was just a black gangbanger who got killed in a drug deal gone wrong. The Pitchford inquiry was commissioned by Theresa May during her time as Home Secretary and that is uh, an inquiry into undercover policing in the UK focusing on the infiltration of more than 1,000 protest groups by undercover officers from 1968 onwards. And it's not actually due to report back until 2023. So it's actually an eight-year-long inquiry. That's long. Because of the size of its remit. Yeah. And uh, the special demonstration squad was disbanded in 2008 and is now um, part of the, I think it's domestic terrorist investigation
0: squad. Mm -hmm. So Doreen and Neville Lawrence divorced in the early 2000s. And Neville returned to Jamaica, but Doreen remained in London. Uh, She has since been made a baroness and sits on the labor benches in the House of Lords, specializing in race and diversity. She also carried the Olympic flag during the opening ceremony of the London 2012 Games. And in October of 2012, she received the Pride of Britain Award. Um, An annual architectural award, the Stephen Lawrence Prize, was established by the Marco Goldschmied Foundation in association with the Royal Institute of British Architects in Lawrence's memory. And the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust was set up in 2002. According to their website, they are an educational organization who, quote, work with young people from disadvantaged backgrounds aged 13 to 30 to inspire and enable them to succeed in the career of their choice. We also influence others to create a fairer society in which everyone, regardless of their background, can flourish. Uh, Stephen's younger brother, Stuart, was a trustee of the charity for many years.
1: On April 23rd, 2018, then-Prime Minister Theresa May declared that from 2019 onwards, April 22nd would be Stephen Lawrence Day. The Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust says that that Stephen Lawrence Day is about the part we all play in creating a society in which everyone can flourish. It is an opportunity for children and young people to have their voices heard, make the changes they'd like to see, and create a society that treats everyone with fairness and respect. Now, normally at this point, one of us would turn to the other and say, so what do you think about this case? But that just feels so inadequate at the end of this.
0: Yeah. What do I think about this case? Well, it's just, unfortunately, one of many similar cases that don't get enough media attention. Yeah. And, you know, in this instance, it was, you know, a young black kid killed by white kids but in so many others, it's a young black kid killed by white adults, by people in power, by police, by any number, like literally every possible permutation of this crime has happened. And like as awesome and and wonderful as it is that so much came out of this case the inquiries the uncovering all this stuff the conversations that it brought about like we need that to happen for every case
1: yeah and Doreen Lawrence said yeah all this amazing stuff has come with it but I still lost my son yeah.
0: at the end of the day a kid with a really bright future was brutally murdered for no reason other than hate and that's yeah. that's not acceptable.
1: No. It isn't. And this, was, this has been described as like a landmark case for the past 27 years. But we're still having the same conversations about racism and society and institutional racism that we were having 27 years ago. And 37 years ago. And 70 years ago.
0: Well, and like, uh, just thinking about that um, TV program again. Like, if you're having to ask the question, S- since Stephen Lawrence has Britain changed, then the answer's probably fucking no. No. It should be. Cause if it
1: had, it would be obvious. Yeah.
0: Like, if you have to ask, you're... It, it, You already know the answer, basically.
1: Yeah. All these amazing things have come of it. You know, there's a charity in his name that's working with people from disadvantaged backgrounds. His mother has won all these prizes and these awards, and she now sits in the House of Lords, which is amazing in itself as a black woman who was not born in the UK. She was born in Jamaica. That is amazing. But still... Son was murdered, and I think like she did bear like the brunt of it uh-huh. because her and, and Neville divorced. But he he moved back to Jamaica because he couldn't stand to live here anymore. Yeah, he had lived in this country from being a small child, I believe. Yeah,
0: uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure that they would trade all of this that's come out yeah. of it just to have their son back. And ultimately yeah. that's what it comes down to. Mm. Someone lost yeah. their life. Someone lost their son, their brother, their, you know, yeah. grandson, friend, like it, this didn't have to happen. Um, so with that in mind, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, be sure to check out uh, the show notes of this episode and uh, our website, where we will have a list of resources uh, on being anti-racist and on being a better ally uh, on bail funds that you can donate to um, and other charities you can donate to. So uh, please check that out. Um, tell us about any resources that we've missed that you think might be useful to include. And uh, do correct us if we've gotten something wrong. Uh, we want to hear and uh also go listen to these other podcasts by black creators we've tried to include a mix of uk focused ones and ones from elsewhere um and we will link all of these shows in the show notes and on our website as well so check them out because you know more black they're, voices they're more are qualified better. Yeah, yeah they're more
1: qualified than two white people exactly who, as we said before we understand we will never understand. Yeah. These people are much more qualified than us to speak on this subject.
0: And they've so. got a different perspective on the world and talk about different oh. stuff than we do too, so. Yeah, Just absolutely. Expand your yeah. horizons, everyone. Yep. Yeah. So. so,
1: these podcasts are Say Your Mind,
0: um, About Race with Renee Edo-Lodge, Good Ancestor Podcast. This is Spoke. The Echo Chamber. Black Scott Pod. Cult 45. The Nod. Snap Judgment. In Black America. Friends Like Us. Ask a Black Woman. 30-something Black and Gay. And uh, there may be more in the list. There will be. as <laughs> We
1: will keep adding yeah. to them
0: um these were just the ones that i could find before we started recording this morning so Mm. we will we will keep the list going
1: yeah so thank you for listening everyone and we'll be back next week yep
0: thanks so much Bye. Bye.
1: bye